You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, And he went in to her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 718 of this podcast. Today is Friday, September 22nd, 2023. And that was a reading of the fourth and final chapter of the short book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And it caps off with an intro to another story, something like a preview, something like, but wait, there's more. And yet that's the end of the book of Ruth. Does Ruth have any idea? Does Boaz have any idea? Does Naomi have any idea that in the grand scheme of things, their descendant will be Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ? Do they have any idea of that? No, they don't. Do they have any idea that a few generations, a lot closer than Christ, but a few generations down still, is going to be the king who is called the man after God's own heart, King David? Do they have any idea of that? No, they don't. No, surely not. Surely they don't. At least there's no indication in the biblical text that they have any such notion. But what's curious in part is that somebody apparently has a knowledge of the story of Boaz and Ruth. Someone, perhaps, who knew that this would be a good story to include because you can see the providence of God working in the life of Boaz and Ruth, and that being something like a lead-up, a lead-in to the person of David. The character of David has this as a pedigree. But who is Boaz? Who is Ruth. They are a man, a woman. Yeah, it's a great story, but who are they? Part of the reason, and this is speculative, but part of the reason why I think this is in the narrative is actually because it comes right after the book of Judges that you have the prophet Samuel and you have Saul. And in this interim period, you have a man who does an honorable thing in taking a woman under his wing and taking her to be his wife. And them together, this man and his wife, loving one another, honoring one another, honoring the good Lord above, being blessed by God to have a son named Obed, having a son who would father a son named Jesse who in turn would father a son named David, this man and his wife, honoring one another, doing the right thing, having good character, sets up future generations to also be blessed. And, oh, by the way, it's not just the future generations in the direct lineage, the direct descent from Ruth and Boaz. It's also the whole nation of Israel forever in perpetuity. It's also, through the person of Christ, all men, all mankind in Christ, Jew and Gentile, being reconciled to God. And part of the story is that the ancestry of David, the ancestry of Jesus, is Ruth and Boaz. As in, a man did the honorable thing and married a woman and provided for her, and protected her, and they had a child. And you just think to yourself about everything that's happened 
in the book of Judges, right before we read this book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And all of the fighting, all of the killing, all of the being hunted and hunting and plotting and scheming and being oppressed and then crying out and being delivered. And these judges who are a bit messy, right? Their stories are a bit messy. And you come through all of that and you're like, wow, is that what it takes to give hope to a country, to give hope to a nation and a people that God has to supernaturally raise up and empower some man, or in the case of Deborah, a woman, to speak what God says to say, to do what God says to do. Is that what it takes? All this fighting, all this killing. But wait, sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes actually what it takes is something as simple as an honorable man providing for and protecting an honorable woman, and the two of them as man and wife having children. The original command from God with a blessing, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That capacity, but also permission, but also a mandate. All of the things that we now have so much conflict about, because this or that is mandatory and it gets a bad taste to say that something would be mandated. Since 2020, if I say mandate and we're playing an association game, a word association game, I say mandate, you think mask mandates, or you think mandated social distancing, or you think vaccine mandates, you think stay-at-home orders, you think mandates that supposedly are in the interest of public health, but boy howdy, your life may or may not be protected by way of these requirements, these insistences, but it's hard to live in the way that we were familiar with living in a post-COVID world, post those mandates. But what if, right? What if the idea of certain tasks, certain pursuits, certain objectives being mandated wasn't always so bad? It wasn't always such an uncomfortable thing What if sometimes when God gives a mandate, like the dominion mandate, like blessing the man and his wife and saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What if sometimes that is a great and glorious thing to have your purpose align with your capacity and align with what you've been given permission to do and align with what you've been told to do. And it all coincides with marriage that having children. There is certainly quite a lot of disagreement about whether young people should get married, as in increasingly young people are not so sure marriage is worth it. And then if they do actually get married anyways, some eventually, they're not so sure about this having kids thing, a lot of them. A lot of 30-somethings, a lot of 20-somethings, a lot of teenagers have been told To save the planet, we need fewer humans, so do your part. Don't have children. And a lot of 30-somethings and a lot of 20-somethings having been told that now in grade school or high school or in college or in all of the above, all the way up, and in the media, popular media, music, movies, television shows, 
commercials, magazine articles, on the radio, a lot have said, yeah, all right, I'm persuaded. It looks difficult. It looks uncomfortable. It looks expensive and money's tight. And what if it doesn't work out with my marriage? If they are married, maybe they say, you know what? What if it doesn't work out? There's just too many risks. There's too many ways that it could go wrong. And I don't know, maybe we'll have one or two and then we'll be done. But what if, right? What if some people don't agree with that? What if some people are not buying it? What if some people are still stuck on this idea that the dominion mandate originally was good, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? What if some people are still of the opinion that he who finds a wife finds a good thing? What if some people are still of the opinion that children are a heritage from Yahweh and the fruit of the womb a reward? It would seem that the story of Ruth in the Old Testament is a simple, clear-cut example of a man and a woman who believed that, and they acted accordingly. And we're not given a high-resolution picture of how their marriage went or how raising Obed went. But what we do know is that Naomi, in her old age, was happy because now there was hope. You know, it's a curious thing. My wife and I, having eight children, seven sons, one daughter, an eighth son, a ninth child due in November, just six or so weeks from now, sometimes when we're out and about, more so for my wife, but sometimes when we're out and about and we encounter elderly people, they smile and they just light right up to see children. And if they comment on our children or if they make a comment or they say something to one of our kids and one of our kids engages them in conversation, they are delighted as if they're not really accustomed to seeing so many kids and they're not so accustomed to being engaged with in a sweet way by children. And by no means do we have the corner on the market when it comes to kids and children engaging in conversation with someone elderly, but it's not as common, it would seem, as it once was. And it's not as common, perhaps, as it was when those people who are now elderly were themselves young. And maybe they think back to when they were little and before the world became so complicated and convoluted with so much propaganda, with so much nudge theory, with so much persuasive technology, with all of us not just glued to a screen when it's the end of the day and dad gets home from work and the kids come home from school and they're watching a TV show, they're watching a movie. No, no, this is a time when all of us reach instinctively into our pockets and we pull out what? We pull out our smartphone. If we're sitting in a waiting room somewhere, if we're standing in a line, we reach into our pocket and we pull out our smartphones and we look at them. And now we're connected with some bit of information or some person somewhere else, or maybe we're not, right? Maybe actually we pull out our phones as often as not to be distant, to create psychological distance between us and the people around us. And you know what? The sad truth is that a lot of us 
a lot of my generation and younger who have had a few children, they're not just doing what our parents' generation did and letting the TV babysit their children, as happened with far too many of my generation. No, no. They are handing their youth, handing their child a tablet. They're handing their child a smartphone at a very young age. And now, what is the kid doing? Always looking down at the smartphone, always looking down at the tablet. Because why? Because mom and dad don't have to pay as much attention to that child when that child is looking at the screen, when that child is playing on their phone or their Kindle or their iPad or fill in the blank. And it's not everybody. And I'm not trying to go on a rant here about how we shouldn't give our kids any electronic devices. No, no. I work in automation engineering. I wouldn't have the job that I have now today if not for having become computer savvy when I was in junior high at high school. I wouldn't have the skills that I have without practical experience, taking computers apart, putting them back together again, building computers, configuring them, upgrading them, tweaking them so I could play computer games, honestly, for the most part, up until my 20s. And then I switched gears to some extent, or at least balanced out with writing, debating people online, now podcasting. But no, I'm not opposed to children having these devices. But insofar as those devices create psychological distance when we're the ones reaching into our pocket to look at them so that we don't have to engage with the people around us, well, so also far too many parents around my age, they give their kids a smartphone or a tablet to create psychological distance between themselves and their child. And there's just a whole lot of emptiness when it's an escape and you don't ever get out of it and you don't look up from the phone to look someone in the eyes and talk with them face to face and watch their facial expressions and watch their body language and regard them as a fellow human being. I think a lot of us have it, if not all wrong, very far wrong in that we miss the significance of a man taking a woman to be his wife, and the two of them having a child. Even one child. Having one child, and maybe Ruth and Boaz had more than one. Only one son is mentioned. But they had one son, who in turn begat another son after himself. Who in turn begat another son after himself. And that son, he was one of a fair number of brothers. But that son being the one who was counted out, that David, who we will read about, Lord willing, as we continue on through the Old Testament, a chapter at a time, or a couple of chapters sometimes, as the case may be, at a time, that David, he's the one who's counted out, and he's not necessarily particularly valued. And so, actually, after a fashion, we have to admit that there's no new thing under the sun with regards to the attitude that sometimes parents can have towards their children. Sometimes children are just kind of best seen, not heard, as far as their parents are concerned. Children should be seen and not heard because the adults don't want to be bothered to hear what their children are curious about or thinking or feeling, which is to say that a whole lot of instruction 
and correction is missed out on. But then, that is to say, it's not necessarily because we have these electronic devices that a lot of parents are disengaged. And admittedly, in the last several years, particularly with COVID mandates, COVID policy, social distancing, masks, vaccines, also critical race theory, also gender theory, a growing chorus of parents are concerned and they are trying to get engaged. But somehow there's a lost in translation value that they're articulating that is not computing for a lot of our powers that be. A lot of the people in positions of authority in the government here in the U.S. and also in other countries in the West, around the world, something's been lost in translation. And that also is not a new thing under the sun. We will get to it still later than we get to David, but at a certain point, you'll find in the Old Testament narrative that God gives Israel over again to be oppressed. But then this time, it's conquest. And this time, Israel and Judah, two kingdoms, will be scattered. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be scattered. And Babylon and Assyria will swoop in and conquer. And we'll find in the book of Daniel, for instance, that a whole lot of youths from the best families, from the leading families, the most influential, you might say the aristocratic families, have been taken off to Babylon to be trained to work in the administrative bureaucratic state that runs the Babylonian empire. What's that about? Well, quite simply, that is a assertion of dominance by a hostile power which wants to stamp out all resistance to the imposition of a new religious, cultural, economic, and political order. We'll take the children away from the aristocratic families, which is to say we will take away their hope for the future. Just like Naomi is filled with happiness and hope for the future in the birth of this grandson, Obed, in her old age, what happens when a hostile foreign power comes in and takes your children away to train them up in a way that you would not agree with, you would not approve of? What happens is more than just those children are taken away. Something more than just offspring is removed from the equation for those parents. For starters, their will to resist, their ambitions to prepare for a future eventuality where this will not be the way of things. Teaching their children, hey, bide your time. In due time, we will regain our independence. That can't happen if their children are not there. For that matter too, if children are taken off to Babylon and put into training in the bureaucratic state to run the administrative state of Babylon, it's unlikely that their parents, their fathers in particular, will rise up if they're still in the homeland, in the home country, if they have not been taken to Babylon as well. But that's an unhappy thought. Come back to Ruth chapter 4 and realize for all the reasons that that's an unhappy thought, 
This is a happy ending to the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. You have Boaz going to town, sitting at the gate, and why is that? You sit at the gate, and you're going to catch someone, whether they're coming or they're going. If you expect them to pass that way, they won't slip by, you won't delay, you won't put it off until tomorrow or next week or whenever you run into them again. No, no, let's handle this as soon as possible. So Boaz sees this man, this man who is a closer kinsman to the deceased, Elimelech, and his sons, Chilion and Malon. And as Boaz says, you have the option, and I need you to make a decision. You need to make a decision whether you're going to redeem this inheritance or not. And what's curious is that the man says, yes, I will redeem it. And then Boaz adds in the detail. Oh, by the way, fine print. See the footnotes. You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, which is to say, you're going to give Ruth a child or children. And all of a sudden, what was a yes, yes, I will, turns into no. No, I won't. Now, what's curious about that is Boaz surely is not the only one who knows that that's the arrangement, that's what's expected, that's appropriate at this time with these customs, that's customary. Boaz is surely not the only one who knows this, and maybe the other guy is hoping that nobody's going to bring it up. Nobody's going to make mention of it because, after all, you have to understand, she is a Moabite. But Boaz presses on the point that he expects is going to be sticky for this guy. And what's curious there is the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Why is that? Why would it impair his inheritance to take Ruth? Would he be disinherited by his father, for instance? Possibly. For example, how would this jeopardize his inheritance to take Ruth and not just the land, not just the property? It doesn't say. Quite simply, it doesn't say. But Boaz clearly was not hoping that the guy first in line would take the land and Ruth. Boaz is clearly interested in Ruth, and he gets the outcome he's hoping for, which is to say he has witnesses. He has the elders of the city also gather around. He wants witnesses who are the respectable men of the town, the respectable, authoritative men need to hear this. This is going to be done properly in the sight of all so that there is no dispute as to how this all played out. Boaz knows what's up. Boaz is a wise man. (laughs) Lest anybody say down the road, oh, wait a second. No, we'll make sure we have witnesses. We'll make sure that this is formal. And so it is. And so it's handled. And next thing you know, Ruth is married. And now they have a child. And it's this simple, simple thing. It's a simple thing that Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a child. But then you have to wonder, was this passed down in the way of oral tradition? 
to David. How did this get written down? How did this get into our Bibles? How are we reading this? How are we able to read a story like Ruth? If, supposing you're not a believer in God, if, supposing you prefer the theories of Will Durant, you say, these are all just cleverly devised myths, made up fables. The Jews wanted to keep up with the Joneses, other nations that had rich culture and literature and tradition. So the Jews just made stories like this up, made the stories up so that they too would have culture, but they were copying, right? They were imitating more advanced nations. It's still remarkable that this was a kind of story that was important to have as part of the collective memory, the cultural memory of what kind of people Israel would be and had been. See, it's not all just, oh, a long, long time ago, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Egypt, and then Moses. Yeah, he was pretty exceptional. And then Joshua. Yeah, he was really exceptional. Be very strong and courageous, God told him. No, no, it's not all that. And it's not all the book of Judges. Oh, they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. There was no king in Israel, so they did what was right in their own eyes. God gave them over to be oppressed for a time. Then he raised up a judge. It's not all that, right? There's more that a people needs to go on than just to know how to make war. There's a time for war, and there is an importance to knowing how to make war when it's time for war. But as Solomon writes, Solomon, son of David, writes, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time to hate, yes, but there's a time to love. There might, yes, 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 be a time to refrain from embracing, but there's a time to embrace. And it seems to me as though particularly with David being a descendant of Jesse and Obed and Boaz and Ruth, you have a recognition in this being important enough to include in the Old Testament literature, even just from a human standpoint, that there is a time for love and there's a time to embrace and there's a time to get married, to provide and to protect and to not have to fight, but to have to be diligent and mindful and to some extent to have to politic, to have to wheel and deal, to have to plan out how you're going to make your arrangements, who you're going to talk with, who you're going to make sure you have witnesses when you talk with them, right? There's a time for war. Yes, we get plenty of that in the Old Testament, but there's a time for peace. There's a time for fighting, but there's also a time for getting married and making love and having children and embracing what a joy and a blessing it is to have children, to bring life by God's grace into the world, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, again, as I said, if you're only thinking from a purely human standpoint, you say, oh, wow, yeah, I see, I get it. Yeah, this was important to the Israelites. This was important to the Jews that they would be able to remember this about themselves. And yeah, that is remarkable. That is cool. But if you take my view, if you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and breathed out by God, all scripture being breathed out by God, not written by 
the will of men, but to tell us who God is, the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days and rested on the seventh. That God who made us in his image, after his likeness, male and female, that God inspired the book of Ruth to be written, to be preserved, and to make it into not just the Jewish scriptures, but our Old Testament as Christians. If you take my view, the story of Ruth and Boaz is important to God. It wasn't just important to the ancient Israelites. Who knows whether they would have included it or not included it, whether it would have been anything special or whether some would have said, ah, that's just some romantic hooey nonsense. Women love stories like that. Nah, nah, skip it. But if you take my view, then God cares about the story of Ruth and Boaz. He cares about stories like the story of Ruth and Boaz. And the story of Ruth and Boaz is a type. It's a type of literature. It's a type of story that we need, which is good for us to know, which is good for us to ponder and to meditate on. And God knows that it's good for our souls. Again, there's no direct intervention, no explicit miracle in the book of Ruth. There's nowhere that it says, and God spoke from heaven and declared his wishes, or God sent an angel to Ruth and told her, God sent an angel to Boaz and told him. God is referenced, he's mentioned, he's talked about, his name is invoked to offer blessings, he's spoken about in relation to the turn of events that has transpired concerning Naomi's husband who passed on and her sons who died in Moab. He's talked about and given credit for the good that happens and also for the not so good that happens. He's credited with having made Naomi bitter, for instance. But then maybe that's part of the reason that this story is in the Old Testament as well, because it's not just that Ruth and Boaz are important to one another. It's also that Ruth and Boaz and Obed, their son, are extraordinarily important to Naomi. As important as the last paragraph is concerning the genealogy of David, looking to the future, also arguably even more important, but at least as important, is the second to last paragraph, which talks about how this all pertained to Naomi. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women, verse 17, of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What does Naomi have at the end of this story that she didn't have after the death of her husband and her sons? What does she have? She has purpose and belonging. Perhaps part of the reason that Ruth and Boaz matter, their story matters to God that he would put this in our Old Testament is because Naomi matters to God. Perhaps part of the reason why Ruth and Boaz are in the Old Testament is because Obed and Jesse and David, knowing where they came from, is important to God. You know, I've done some genealogical research, not nearly as thorough as I should like, and someday I would love to pick it back up again. Maybe I'll win the lottery I don't play, and that'll be one of my hobbies, one of my many hobbies that I 
spend the time, spend my hours working on. But the genealogical research I've done so far, as often as not, gives me names and dates and maybe a place of birth and a place of death and where they're buried and no other information. No story, just a name and dates, where they were born, where they died. That's all I know. Sometimes, sometimes, however, there's a story. And sometimes there are threads that you can pull on and they give you a sense of where your context is in the grand scheme of things. In the history of the world, hey, what was happening 500 years ago with my ancestors? What were they about? What were they doing while this was happening in the new world with Columbus and these Europeans landing on the shores of Central America, exploring South America, exploring North America. What were my ancestors doing right about that time? What were they up to? When you get a story, even if you don't have a lot to go on for who came after and who came before, that story gives you some point of reference. It gives you some context. And then maybe you speculate, maybe you wonder, maybe your imagination runs wild with how that little story maybe tells you something about their son or their grandson, why he did what he did. If there's a story about their great-grandson, now you say, ooh, interesting, interesting. Maybe you start to see patterns. Maybe you begin to understand that certain things are passed down and inherited, and it's no accident. Now, hindsight being 2020, and us not knowing, us being finite, maybe we speculate, maybe we imagine we know more about how to connect the dots than is actually fair to, but the dots have to connect. And even just knowing that there are dots, knowing that this dot is here and this dot is here, is something. David, doubtless, had this as a dot to give him some sense, and he probably knew something about his father. He probably knew something about his grandfather. Did he know his great-grandfather? If his grandfather was already an old man, as chapter 3 attests to when Boaz praises and thanks Ruth for having taken notice of him instead of going after young men, whether rich or poor, you could have gone for somebody young. But you're interested in me? Well, that implies that he is not a young man, How old is he? We don't know. It's not said. It's not a critical detail. But it's probable that David did not know his great-grandfather, Boaz. He surely knew his father. Maybe he knew his grandfather, Obed. But for David to have this story, even if he never met Boaz, didn't know him personally, he knew his great-grandfather in an important way. And now we do too. That David writes so much of the Psalms that so much is written about David as well. He's such an important person in the history of God's people, Israel, in the run-up to the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the incarnate Son of God. David is important to our understanding, the heart of God and the character of God, but also, surely, Ruth and Boaz are important for David to know where he came from. This was Boaz's character. Boaz was an honorable man. He did right by Ruth and Naomi. 
He was an honorable man. You almost have to wonder, were these stories that David was told growing up, stories told to him by his father, or maybe even his grandfather, maybe Obed was fond of telling David about his own father, Boaz, and how his parents met, and what the story was there. It doesn't say. We don't know. But what we do know is the story matters. And what I believe is the story matters to God, and this type of story matters to God. I'm not Boaz. You're not any of the people in this story. But there are types of people in the story, and even just God being referenced and all things working out the way that they do tells us that this is an important story to God and that these kinds of stories, this type of story is important to God. Sometimes what we need is an aspirational model. What we need is somebody to look up to. Sometimes young men, for instance, need a figure like Boaz to read about. And if they know him in real life, that's all the better. But even just to read about him gives them also a point of reference. It gives them some idea of context. Hey, what is best in life? <laughs> like Conan the Barbarian is asked. Only there's a better answer than what Conan gives, particularly if Boaz and his example is any indication. What's better? To crush your enemies? To see them driven before you and hear the lamentation of their women? <laughs> is that what is best in life? It would seem, sometimes the answer is no. As a matter of fact, it would seem even to make war is only sensible in the context of doing justice, loving mercy. Mercy for whom? Well, maybe not always your enemies, but certainly there would be victims if those enemies would be brutal to anybody who fell into their hands. Walking humbly before your God, okay, What do we see in the character of Boaz, how he relates to Ruth and Naomi? We see humility. We see evidence of the fear of the Lord in that he provides, he protects, he uses his authority and influence to provide and protect, even indirectly by way of how other people will relate to, they are instructed to, they are ordered to relate to Ruth. We see evidence of an honorable man in Boaz. And God is providing for us an aspirational model, I believe, in Boaz. As men, we should be like Boaz when it comes to the way that we would relate to vulnerable women in our vicinity, in our proximity. For that matter too, I believe God is providing for us food for the soul in the example of Ruth. Ruth is a blessing to Naomi. Maybe Naomi doesn't have any more sons. She doesn't have any more children. What would her fate have been if both of her daughters-in-law had taken her first advice, her first instruction, gone on home, gotten remarried? What would have happened to Naomi? Who knows? What we do know is Ruth pledged herself to Naomi, and there was a blessing in that. It was recognized by someone of good character, namely Boaz, and he comments on it. Everybody knows how you have related to your mother-in-law. And it's obvious that that has led to Boaz being smitten. He is very impressed, which is not the reason why she did it, which is all the more reason for him to be very impressed. She took her life in her hands. Ruth did. 
She risked her very life. Anything could have happened to her. Going with Naomi to Israel. Yeah, Naomi, your people will be my people. Well, wait a second. Time out, Ruth. Hold on. 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 What if they don't agree <laughs> to being your people? Hmm? What if some who say they are Naomi's people want nothing to do with you because you're a Moabite? What if they want to be ugly? What if they want to be rude? What if they want to be mean? What if they want to abuse you? What if they want to drive you off? It doesn't even enter into the equation from what is written. Maybe it was a consideration, but it didn't hold her back. And so, therefore, Ruth demonstrates a tremendous amount of courage and integrity. And she does a remarkably brave, loving, kind, loyal thing. And Boaz sees that. And his being a man of good character, he is attracted to this woman of good character. And they live happily ever after. It's a great story. You know, I hear too many when they talk about marriage in our day, in our context, and they hear some young couple is looking to get married. They just recently got married. They're thinking about getting married, whatever it is. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of, oh, I don't know. How long have you known him? How long have you known her? Now, we don't know in the case of Ruth and Boaz how long they knew each other, but it's a short book. (laughs) Either this is the Cliff Notes version, or this was a very brief engagement. And maybe it was. And you know what? She was a woman of good character. He was a man of good character. They didn't let time slip away from them. They seized the day. Or, you might say, Boaz seized the day. But then, it was a joint effort. Naomi sees the potential here. And you know what? You know what's great about that? Naomi, from where she started, when the women of the town say, is this Naomi? On their return to Bethlehem from Moab. From that point to when Naomi starts to give advice to Ruth concerning Boaz, something shifts in the attitude of Naomi, where, you know what? She's not just thinking about herself. She's not just sitting there throwing a pity party. Oh, woe is me. Woe is me. That's all my life is going to be from now on is bitterness. How do I know? Well, quite simply, because if she were all wrapped up in herself, if that's all she could think about, if that's all she cared about, she wouldn't have given the wise counsel that she did to Ruth. Now, I mean, some of us, some of us might say, I don't know if that was such wise counsel. I mean, this is not prescriptive. It's descriptive, Garrett. Yes, yes. Okay, great. Great. Good points. Score one for you. But listen, right? It worked out. And Boaz was the kind of man who wouldn't and didn't take advantage of Ruth. And you know what? Even just his demonstrating that to Ruth was probably quite a comfort to know. That was probably a relief. (laughs) If at all she wondered when she first got the advice from Naomi, well, what if this and what if that? If she was nervous, if she was afraid, the way he related, the way he protected and honored her and praised her, and provided for her and protected her, it surely came about in part because humanly speaking, Naomi saw the potential there and gave encouragement and advice to Ruth. And you know what? Here's the thing. We should 
also be like Naomi in that regard. We see some young man of good character. We see some young woman of good character. And we see there's potential there. Hey, you know what? I see that there's a little bit of interest and maybe you don't see it yet, but you will. I notice the way he looks at you. I notice the way she glances back. I notice the way she smiles when she hears you talking and telling stories. I notice there's a look in her eyes of admiration for you. It's clear that she respects you. I see the way he is considerate of you, how he relates to people who are in no position to repay him. He is generous. He is kind. He is honorable. He's an honorable man. Let me give you some advice, right? Naomi is doing the good Lord's work here. (laughs) She is doing the good Lord's work in part because she's not just sitting around thinking about herself all the time. She's looking to Ruth's future. And you know what? As it turns out, her looking to Ruth's future with Boaz turns out to be her future happiness as well. Her future happiness in being nursed to a grandson, Obed, directly results from Ruth and Boaz working out and getting together. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There is more to consider here. There's more that is remarkable about this. Namely, and don't miss this, these are the generations of Perez. Who's Perez? Who is he? It was mentioned. Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar, which is to say Tamar was at first the wife of one of Judah's sons. And the Bible says that this son was a wicked man. And so God killed him. And because the custom was, when there were no children, a brother would take his deceased brother's widow and give her children, get her pregnant. A certain man, who was also a son of Judah, named Onan, took to the task, but was also a wicked man. And how is he a wicked man? Well, let's just say he had no intentions of impregnating Tamar. That was his duty. So he wanted to have fun with Tamar, but he didn't want to get her pregnant. He was a wicked man, and we're not given a lot of detail, just that he pulled out and spilled his seed on the ground, and God killed him. God took it very seriously. I'm sure there was more to it than just that, but that's what's mentioned as indicative of his general character. He was not doing his duty. He was just using this woman, taking advantage of her in a very not honorable way. And so then, Tamar says, okay, she's 0 and 2 on sons of Judah. And the responsibility fell then to Judah to give another of his sons. But then somehow he comes to this weird, wacky conclusion that, you know, the common denominator here, surely it's not that my sons are wicked. It's this woman, right? Never mind that his sons were wicked and God killed them, which, oh, by the way, is another proof, another evidence Another argument for the Bible being the inspired word of God is that these things being said about the illustrious forebearers are not exactly flattering, right? You're not just given their best side and all of the happy things about them, all the positive stories. You're given stories like when Judah refused to give his third son to Tamar so that she could get pregnant by that son of Judah, according to the custom, what does Tamar do? Tamar 
dresses up as a prostitute and waits on the side of the road. And when Judah passes by, she solicits him. Rather, he solicits her one way or the other. He pays for her services and she becomes pregnant by him. And next thing you know, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant and Judah knows she's not pregnant by his third son that he refused to give to Tamar. And so he says she must be put to death for immorality. She's been an immoral woman. She must be put to death. And it's almost as if he is relieved to have some excuse, some reason to be rid of her. And yet she gets the upper hand. Whose items, whose property are these effects, my lord? Oh, yes, I do recognize those. She's more righteous than I am. I am the father. That's Perez, right? That's where Perez comes from. It doesn't come from some honorable union of a man like Boaz and a woman like Ruth. Perez has this very sordid, extraordinarily mind-bendingly dysfunctional origin. I mean, how would you like to have Judah as a father and have that be how you came to be, how you were conceived? Can you even imagine being in Perez's shoes? Not a lot is said about him, but then Perez, in due time, he grows up, gets married, has a son named Hezron. And Hezron, after him, has a son named Ram. And then Ram has a son after him named Aminadab. And Aminadab fathers Nishan. Nishan fathers Salmon. Salmon fathers Boaz. And Boaz is an honorable man, which is to say, it's not all determinism. It's not all just what your environment was and who your ancestors were. And that can be a happy bit of news if some of your ancestors weren't always so honorable and they didn't always do the right thing. And it's not all happy stories. It also can be a sobering thing when you do find honorable people in your lineage to realize, you know what? It's no guarantee that I'm going to be an honorable person, but at least I have some cautionary tales and I have some good examples to look up to. What's remarkable is, again, going back to Christ, bringing this all forward in due time to the gospel accounts. There are three women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Three women, which is remarkable because typically that was not the custom to mention the mothers. So-and-so fathers so-and-so, which is to say the male line, patrilineal. And yet three places, here's a woman mentioned, three places, one being Tamar, the other being Rahab, the third being Ruth. Rahab, there is some debate about this, but it would seem Rahab is that Rahab who is the prostitute, who hides the spies when they are spying out Canaan. It would seem as though this is that Rahab. Either way, Ruth is a Moabitess. If the Rahab in Jesus' genealogy is Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, then that is to say Boaz is the son of Rahab, which is to say that Boaz, being this honorable man, had a mother who was not an Israelite, who was not a Jew by birth. And yet she 
believed in God, and it was credited to her as righteousness. Boaz, being this honorable man, having a mother who literally was a prostitute, wow, that's even more remarkable than if his great-great-great-great-grandmother was Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute to get pregnant by Judah. This is wild stuff, but you know what? You know what? Anybody who would say, oh, I don't know, Ruth, I don't know if you should marry this Boaz guy. I mean, do you know his mother was a prostitute at one time? Yeah, you know he descends from Tamar, right? No, there's no such record in the book of Ruth. And it would be ridiculous and absurd if there was some such. Because Boaz has good character. He displays and demonstrates good character. He's an honorable man. And for that matter too, his mom didn't continue on being a prostitute. She married Salmon, if it was the same Rahab. But what we do know is Ruth and Boaz have a great-grandson named David. David, not perfect, is nevertheless a man after God's own heart. And Ruth and Boaz, their story should tell us that it's important for us to know these kinds of stories. It's important for us to live out these kinds of stories. Because if the world stands, our descendants after us need to have good stories like this. Not just cautionary tales in their family tree, but also good stories, aspirational models, things to look up to and to aspire to emulating and walking after people who trusted God, who did the right thing. Marriage is a tremendous blessing. It doesn't mean that it's always easy, but he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Boaz clearly believed that in taking Ruth to be a wife. Children are a heritage from Yahweh. Why do we know the name of Ruth and Boaz because of King David in large part. Why are we even here? Because our ancestors had children. We also should think about how we approach the institution of marriage, how we approach the business of having children, raising children. These are good gifts from God. And I, for one, am just plum tickled that we have literature in the Old Testament, like the book of Ruth, to testify to that. Not as a quick note in passing on the way to more fighting, more killing, more dying, more drama. No, you know what? Sometimes the heroic thing is to get married and have children. Sometimes. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.